Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We all know that sound, but most people don't want to talk about it. You travel anywhere else on the planet, there are things that your nose will experience and your, your eyes will see that you'll just be blown away by. It's, we take it for granted, absolutely. Trust me, it's not my favorite topic either. But without the toilet and modern plumbing, our lives would be a lot worse off. From this old house, this is Clear Story. Your home in a new light. I'm Kevin O'Connor. When was the last time you showed off your bathroom? Look, I get it. A toilet isn't as exciting as a new kitchen countertop, but it is way more vital to our lives. There's the expected benefits. Having access to modern plumbing prevents disease and childhood mortality. And then there's the more unexpected benefits. Think about it. More kids go to school. Adults are more productive. The GDP of a country goes up. In fact, the modern toilet is one of the world's most important inventions. It's credited with saving one billion lives. I mean, think about that. That's more than antibiotics, insulin, and anti-malaria drugs combined. So settle in and have a seat because we're going to have a conversation that nobody knew they wanted to have. The problem with like plumbing and water supply and sewage treatment is that this is a skill and an art and a knowledge we've had for 5,000 years, but it keeps getting lost from like one civilization to the other. That's Hodding Carter. He wrote a book called Flushed, How the Plumber Saved Civilization. And as he said, the history of sanitation is a little murky. There were fits and starts, then new innovations, and for long periods of time, well, nothing really new happened. But to understand what the very first toilet was like, we have to go back more than 5,000 years to 3,000 BC. During the Bronze Age, the Harappa civilization in what is now Pakistan was known for its architecture and culture. The city was built in a grid pattern. There were over 700 wells that supplied fresh water for the residents, and their homes had indoor bathrooms. They had water flowing through. They had you know, these seats they'd sit on or squat over, you know, these holes where water would take their waste out, put into a cesspit outside the door, and when it rained, they would overflow and go into the river way downstream. You know, and they had that, they had that essentially 5,000 years ago, and they also had indoor bathing. The indoor baths were built out of brick and plaster. 
and old bath water was used to send the solid waste from the toilet down pipes and then outside of the house. It was pretty innovative. The ancient Greeks innovated some more, collecting rainwater on rooftops and then using gravity to funnel the water down through terracotta pipes so that the human waste could be flushed outside of the house. The Greeks, you know, around 800 or so, started to understand it, you know, and grow from it and, and add more to it, started using water delivery through lined tunnels, and then they, they built lead pipes. And then that actually didn't disappear. And then the Romans capitalized on that and added to it and became like the plumbers of the world, you know, the gods of plumbing. As Hodding says, when it comes to the biggest improvements to the toilet, well, we have to give that prize to the Romans. They were not, you know, afraid of bodily functions. You know, the bathhouses, which were these amazing marble palaces, you know, all these different rooms with a hot room, a medium hot room, a cold room. And then they had places where you got massage with oil and a scraping knife, a scourgel. (laughs) You know, it really sounds like the perfect place. Added to that was the latrines. And they were usually, they could be anywhere from 20 seats in a room to supposedly 1,600, you know, according to one story at the time, you know, who wrote this up. So I don't know about that, but they would sit there in like a U-shaped room and they would all have be on these, you know, marble structures and there'd be a hole cut in for, you know, them to sit on and there'd be a stream running in front of them, which they could dip a sponge into to wipe themselves with. And then when they, after they used the latrine, they defecated, it would go into the hole and then that would get washed out and taken out of the bathhouse. And they used this as a place not just to do that, but they would go there and talk about how their marriage was going, you know, what, what political favor they needed, you know, what bribe needed to be paid. It was like the place where everyone was met and talked and did business and did the daily life. So it was like there's no fear of bodily functions with them. How novel of an idea is that, that there will be freshly flowing water, that there'll be sanitary toilets to take our waste away, that they'll be public, that they'll be clean, that they'll be socially acceptable. Is that a revolutionary idea? Oh, yeah, it definitely was. The Romans democratized water supply. They showed that they could bring it in for the masses. They could then have it there flowing all the time. And they could also make sure that everyone got clean and healthy and got rid of their waste. And no one really had to take care of it except for the people who were paid to do it. And that was definitely revolutionary. Revolutionary, but it was also really unsanitary. Rats were known to run along the pipes in the public bathrooms, occasionally biting the bottoms of users. And since toilet paper hadn't been invented yet, people cleaned themselves with communal sponges. So disease was a problem. But still, the Romans earned their place as the first master plumbers because they not only removed waste from the cities, but they also brought in clean water. They built massive aqueducts that carried in water from 50 miles away. The flowing water was piped continuously into the homes of the wealthy and to public baths and fountains. It was a true feat of engineering. One of the things that put everyone else in awe of them was the fact that there was always, you know, water. No one was ever going to be dying of dehydration. They were able to, like, you know, bathe and do things other parts of the world didn't even know how to do. That really was their strength. I mean, besides, you know, they did have a pretty good military also. Another big advancement in the development of the toilet came in the 1100s. People moved from communal toilets to semi-private ones called garter robes. Medieval castles had these very small bathrooms perched on the outside of the stone walls and supported by corbels or stone brackets. 
Picture a room bumped out a few stories up with a chute cut into the floor. Now, inside the castle, there were usually no doors on the garter ropes. They were just little alcoves along a hallway, and hay, grass, or moss was used for toilet paper. And there was a little wooden seat. Essentially, it was a seat that was put out over the edge of the castle where you could eliminate your waste, and it would go drop down to the ground below, then be picked up by men called nightmen, who would, and the stuff they were picking up was called night soil because they'd do it at nighttime, and then been brought out to the farms as fertilizer, or it'd go straight into the moats. And so that's for most people to realize that moats were not this beautiful thing that surrounded castles, but were actually, in fact, the first biological weapon. <laughs> if you went to one of those moats, you were not going to be fighting very many years afterwards. Over the next several hundred years, there really aren't any great improvements when it comes to sanitation. The British and the early colonists used chamber pots or clothes stools, pieces of furniture that looked like decorative side tables. They were carried from room to room, and when the top was open, there was a hole that was fitted with a velvet cushion, so you could be comfortable while you sat. Essentially, you'd be sitting there talking to people even, maybe sometimes, and you'd be, you know, uh, peeing and, and pooping right into it. And after you were done, you simply tossed your waste out a window. Carly Lou, which meant look out for the water below, and, and maybe where the word Lou came from, actually. No one's positive about that. So, like, up until, like, the 16, 1700s, you know, it was disgusting to walk through a European city because there was always just all this feces and all over the place, and it was sometimes being collected, sometimes not. Disease, odor, and filth caused some local governments to create rules around emptying chamber pots out of windows. In Edinburgh, you had to wait until nighttime, and you had to sound a drum before sending wastewater flying. In 1724, New York City banned emptying waste into the city streets, so residents had to go to a river to dump their chamber pots directly into the water. Now, along the way, there were some improvements. In 1596, Sir John Harrington, the godson of Queen Elizabeth I, designed and installed the first modern flushable toilet. He called it the Ajax, or water closet. You could sit down on it and you know, do your business, and then water would pour into it, and then it would flow into another chamber, and there was a stopper of some sort that would then block the smell coming back into the water closet. And that was sort of the birth of the toilet. The water closet used seven and a half gallons of water. But Harrington said to save water, 20 people could use it before it was flushed. He bragged that his invention would make unsavory places sweet, noisome places wholesome, and filthy places cleanly. Even his godmother went for it. Queen Elizabeth had one of Harrington's toilets installed in her palace in Richmond. Over the next 200 years, the toilet slowly modernized. One big improvement was the S-trap. In 1775, a Scotsman named Alexander Cummings figured out that an S-shaped bend in the pipe could trap water and keep foul odors from creeping back up. We still use that basic design today, although we call it a P-trap. They started started to slowly add things onto that, making it more and more like the toilet we see today. And that happened hand-in-hand with more and more people moving to cities, places that only had hundreds of thousands of people before now had millions in them, like London, for instance. People were using these new devices 
and they were just dumping them into cesspits all over the city. At one point, there were 200,000 cesspits in London alone. 200,000? 200,000. 200,000 dotted all of London. And this was in the early 1800s. And, you know, so it was great that the water closet was getting more and more developed. It's like people were starting to put them into, like, apartment buildings even. They were getting smaller. But, you know, they were making it easy so everyone could just use their bathroom in their homes and they were private. You know, those would then flush usually out just straight out into the cesspit on the street uh, or maybe into your basement. And those would overflow. And London in the mid-1800s was... Probably the, besides Paris and a few other big European cities where were the worst places to live. The Great Stink of London. In a minute. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So it's 1858. London is one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful cities. It's home to one in five people in the United Kingdom. The growing population means more toilets are being installed in people's homes. Aging cesspits, basically big pits lined with bricks or stone that were filled with sewage, well, they're overwhelmed. They leak and overflow, and with no real sanitation system, the waste is pumped directly into the Thames River. That's the same place where a lot of residents get their drinking water. Yeah. The stench and spread of cholera has residents afraid. And then a summer heat wave hits, and the situation becomes even more unbearable. The average life expectancy, I think, was 26. Oh. The mortality rate of, of, for infants was 50%. And dysentery, obviously, it was everywhere, typhoid. One summer in 1858 in London, it got so bad that when Parliament was meeting to talk about the issue of waste removal and the Thames being polluted from all this waste, the stench drove them from Parliament. They actually grabbed curtains off the wall and put their clothes on their faces and couldn't even meet to talk about it. And that's finally, it was called the Great Stink of London of 1858. <laughs> that's when it actually, things started to transform as far, as far as civil engineering and like, what do we do with this water closet and how we make it, you know, make it a sanitary thing. So you have this invention, the toilet, that, you know, allows people to basically live in closer quarters with each other, right? You don't need a right. pile out back anymore. You can crowd folks in. It brings us into these cities. It piles us on top of each other, but it does cause the great stink. It causes the problem then because we haven't refined it to the point where it's effective enough to cleanly take the waste away. And, and so there's a lot of mistakes made along the way. It was a, you know, decades of time learning, <laughs> learning curve to it where they go, oh, let's add this little feature so the smell doesn't come in the home. Just for instance, the venting of the toilets and the venting of the sewage was something that no one really realized, you know, 
to what degree it had to be done. They might vent the toilet item, but they wouldn't vent the water coming into the sink, you know, in the kitchen. And so it was all tied together. So there are gases building up in the sewers, hydrogen sulfide and methane, and it starts leaking into houses through the plumbing. People get sick, and even worse, you light a flame and boom. You know, six workers would die. It was causing almost as many problems as it was solving. It was only from this, you know, horrible stench that was going on in London that they finally realized, okay, we have to build a system that actually takes this waste out of here. It drops it way further downstream than what we're doing right now. And then at least we can make sure all the millions of people living in London stay healthy and we get rid of it. And and, and that did happen. Parliament tasked Joseph Bozeljet, an engineer, with building 1,100 miles of drains under the city, which fed into 82 miles of brick sewers. Waste from toilets was captured and pumped east, far beyond the city and eventually into the ocean. Bozeljet was one of the first to use something called Portland cement, known for its strength and water resistance. In fact, the sewers he designed are still in place today. Now, as cities like London and New York were grappling with the growing popularity of the toilet, the toilet itself was undergoing changes. So, what did it look like in the 1800s? Well, to find out, we sent our very own Richard Trithui to the Plumbing Museum, which is just outside of Boston. Hello. Hi. How are you there? How are you? I'm Richard Trithui. I'm Linda Viking. Hi, it's Linda. A pleasure How to are meet you. Nice I'm to well. See you. I feel I'm like well. I'm going to uh, Eden. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think? Yeah. <laughs> a plumbing museum is pretty cool. Right up your alley. Yeah. All so, right. Sh- can you show me around? I would love to show you around. Why? You know Richard as our resident plumber on this old house, and the passion runs deep. His family has been in the business for four generations. At the Plumbing Museum, he met Linda Viking, who oversees an incredible collection of toilets. This is one of our earliest toilets, and of course it's made of wood. Sure. And it's called an earth closet. Yeah. And it was manufactured back in 1860 by a Reverend Mole in England. So it has a lift-up shelf and then uh, a place for a chamber pot underneath? Yes, or a bucket. A bucket. And then uh, how did the bucket remove? A little... There's a door. A little door. It opens up. Someone had the unfortunate job of having to move, empty the bucket. That's right. But the earth uh, would go in here. Earth or ash would go in the tank. Oh, when you were through, yeah. you would close this cover. Yeah. And this grate would oh. take the earth or ash and pour it over oh, the Oh, look at that. So it would, cover, it would cover the solids. Did two wow. things. Took care of the gases or yeah. the odor. Yeah. And when the bucket was full, you could take it and put it in your garden and use it as fertilizer. Well, I could see there was, um, it, worked, it worked a little bit, but there was room for improvement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't going to run out of ash or earth. but Definitely. Oh and, of course, this is made of wood, too. And, right. uh well, why not? When we hygienic, came to this, hygienic, when, huh? When we came Let's to get this some country, absorbent wood. <laughs> when we came to this country, we had plenty of it, yeah, so we used yeah, it. Yeah. Now, this wooden toilet, or earth closet, it doesn't use any water. It's really a composting toilet. But the early flushing toilets used water with the help of gravity. And as potters came from Europe to settle in America, toilets evolved from wood to China. And they started to make bowls. So we, this is a short hopper, so we're looking at a little China, Vit, Vitreous China, right? China? Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's got the tall tank. Right. 
of course, because the flush valve hadn't been invented yet. So, so the this taller, this the was tank, this would have been this would have been some of the first ones I ever saw, but where it had the basic bowl and then a pipe that went up the wall to about a height of five and a half, six feet at least, and then that tank was there and would have had a pull chain and water would come screaming down. Right. 1891, we came along with the Nautilus, yeah. which is a colorful toilet. Wow. Somebody was living high style with yes. the old Nautilus. Who, who was the, I the swell no, who got that thing? I have no idea. Green earthenware Nautilus, W.C. Cooper Brassworks. So this is this china bowl, but it's been painted in ornate uh, colors. and uh, With a beautiful wooden seat, wood, yeah, by the way. Wooden seat. Yeah, watch out for splinters, though. Yes. <laughs> but, but, of course, only the wealthy could afford them back right. then in the that's 1890s. Right. And that's why they would go with something yeah. like this. If yeah. you were putting that much effort into having a bathroom put in your yeah. home, oh, yeah. you would spend the extra money yeah. and, and have a show-off item Oh yeah, <laughs> People would come guests. visit. Yeah, you, you, well, you Come use a, my toilet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, was, it was more than a novel idea. Yeah. We go from the old to the new. Yeah. And that would be the new me. I say that that does everything but cook your supper for you. Right. Linda is standing in front of a state-of-the-art toilet. It's the Kohler Numi, and it looks less like a toilet and more like a shiny electronic box. And for roughly $10,000, it can be yours. You can put a personal greeting in. It can say, good morning, Richard. Hello, Numi. (laughs) (laughs) It also has ambient lighting. Right. Uh, that can change color to different days yeah. and things like that. You would program it. So it has a little wireless remote, so you can set it for flush mm-hmm. or soft flush, or you can dry your little backside. It will oh, the lift, the, the lid you. comes up, right? The seat is heated. Yes. Uh, it has also a foot warmer. Yeah. So while your tush is warm, your right. toes are warm too. Well, it'll also close and flush when you leave, won't it? Yes. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of all the toilets, from the Roman public marble seats to the remote-controlled, heated, music-playing Numi, well, they were all designed to do the same basic thing. Remove the waste from where people live so that we'd be healthier and more productive, so that we would live better lives. Do you consider that a magical device or just an overly simplistic, outdated device? After I took two hours to get here, I thought that toilet was a magical device. <laughs> <laughs> when you don't have one, That's right. you need the so magic. So there are moments that it's magical. <laughs> yes. More after the break. So I'm thinking about plumbing. I'm thinking about your trip to the plumbing museum, which takes us way back. Yeah. Are you, um, I mean, no one has a better view and insight into this than you do. Are you surprised with how far we've come? How far we've come? Yeah. Um, back then it was just you were trying to desperately to get the feces to leave and the water to come and just to clean it. And it was, it was a hard duty. I mean, I would not want to have swum across a moat. In the old days, that would be the other reason not to be an invader to any castle. Maybe it's a little bit magical, the process. Let's talk about the process. How does it actually work? You know, there's no batteries. There's no gas-powered. One of the things we we do on Ask This a House and This a House is to explain the basic concept. And I just just love breaking down 
you know, in a toilet, there's really only two thingies that have to happen. You have to get water into it, up into the tank, and you got to get the water to leave the tank and to come down with enough velocity to move waste and liquids through a trapway and to scour the bowl. So it's really just two devices inside of any tank. They may be in different forms and shapes and different actions, but this basic thing hasn't changed since 1890, but even before that. So there's always some sort of fill valve. We call it a water regulator. It's also called a ball cock, hee, hee, hee. It used to have a big float on the inside it that you could bend the arm. Now they become self-contained, one piece, and there's a float that's inside it. And the other is the entire mechanism to then when you want to say, I want to empty that tank into the bowl. There's always a tank lever of some sort. This action now invites the water to go down with gravity down into the bowl. And then that's the whole big challenge. How do we get enough water, enough energy from the weight of that water to still make those toilets work. And we keep on pushing that. I think we're getting close to that limit with conventional water usage. This energy you talk about, let's break that down. It's the physics of water, the weight of water. Which is what? 8.33 pounds per gallon, but it's, you know, how much velocity when we lift that guillotine that lets the water fall down from the tank into the bowl, is it moving fast enough to pick up and scour around the rim so that you wash the bowl and then does it pick up enough of the solids to move it down? You know, inside of the bowl itself, it has a brutally simple process inside which is called siphon jet, a siphon. To have a siphon, you have to have a short leg and a long leg. If I wanted to drain a pool, I'd have to have a little short piece of hose that went into the pool, but I'd have to make sure that the other side of that hose had to be longer and deeper. And once I could get water up that short leg, it would then continue to pull down the long leg. And that's really what happens millions of times every hour inside of a toilet where when you flush it, there's water that sits in the bowl, but down at the very bottom, if you look down at the bottom of the bowl, there's a little hole And when that water comes down, it's going to push a shot of water up the trapway. And that powers up that short leg of the siphon. And once that water goes up over that hill and down into the pipe, the waste pipe, it's now going to keep pulling until it evacuates the bowl and it breaks the siphon. It's a simple, simple process. So it's, people think it plumbing so confusing. It's it, You need something to get the water into the tank, a way to get the water down out of the tank into it, and then you need a siphon action inside the bowl. Plumbing engineering is... Brilliant. It's unknown. It's unnoticed. It's only noticed if it doesn't work, sadly. So you never notice it until it breaks down. Yeah. And then they call us. <laughs> and then we got to figure out what went wrong. What are they calling you for? What are the most typical problems that happen with that otherwise very simple, proven, and elegant system? I think the biggest problem is just continuous leaks from the tank down to the bowl. It's a big water waster. How many tank levers do you have to jiggle? And every time you, when that tank lever, which is made with an inch of its life from a, in terms of a quality standpoint, every manufacturer wants to get the lowest price parts on their pieces so they can make their margin. So, you know, they, they work fine. I don't get mad at me, everybody. But it's like they're still made relatively cheaply. And that design hasn't changed much. That simple tank lever where you hit it and you hope by gravity it drops down. You hope it doesn't get sticky. So that's one, the tank lever. And then whatever the mechanism which has to seal down at the bottom. You know, in the old days, we had a thing called a tank bulb, and that thing would sit by gravity. It actually sat down there pretty good. Nowadays, they have more of a pressurized diaphragm that will seal things. So those are the two wear parts. 
the fact is, if you hear water running in the middle of the night, or if you see a tank that is sweating like crazy all summer, it suggests that there is a small leak. And that small leak, even though water is relatively inexpensive, it's not a small leak. It's quietly going down the drain all day, all night, every day. So shifting gears for a second, this system that we rely on here in this country, very broadly, stepping back, do you describe it as miraculous or as incredibly simple? I think it's absolutely miraculous. I really do. I think when when the cities were being developed, you go around these urban centers and you see the what they needed to do to bring water to the, the population. It's unbelievable. These pumping stations and they were beautifully beautiful architecture. They were celebrating bringing this gift to uh, the cities. I still think it's a it's an absolute miracle that we can process that much water and make it be clean and literally repeat the cycle. You in America at least, you can open up your faucet and pretty well trust that that water is clean and you can pretty well trust that that waste is going to go away to some magical place that nobody knows about. Some sewage treatment that is out of sight, out of mind, that works 24-7, 365. Most people don't want to talk about it, don't want to think about it. But you ask them to go one half of a day without a toilet, it's like the world has ended. Right. And this brings up a big, I think, underappreciated feature of our system um, here in the U.S. and maybe throughout a lot of first world countries. We use a lot of water to move our waste. Mm-hmm. There are billions of people in this world that don't have access to that. Yep. And I don't think the rest of the world is going to be the beneficiary of that type of system. No. Because they don't even have clean water to drink, let alone water to right. use to move stuff away. So what does that mean? Like, I, how do we serve the billions who don't have what we have? Do we we can't approach it the same way we approached our system, can we? I don't think so. You know. Uh, there's so many parts of the world where there's political unrest and there's not an infrastructure government that's going to put in the money or time or interest to put in sewer lines and water. I think it's got to be some sort of composting, some regionalized composting device that sort of makes those solids stay and becomes usable for fertilizer. You know, the first fertilizer was guano that I knew about. Guano is seagull feces. And so there were people that just literally went, they'd throw chum up on the rocks and then the seagulls would use it and then they would shovel it and they shipped it all over the world. And, you know, the equivalent of human guano could be, uh, could be used to good effect. For what it's worth, I'm with Richard and Hotting. I think modern plumbing is miraculous. We may not think about it, but that's part of the magic, right? Silently, behind the scenes, without any fuss, Plumbing works for us all day, every day. It gives us comfort, privacy, and hygiene. But most importantly, without it, things are a whole lot worse. We have stench, disease, and even premature death. And that's why there are a lot of people thinking about the future of the toilet and how they can bring what some of us have, toilets that are clean and safe, to two and a half billion people around the world who don't have access to sanitation. So what does the toilet of the future look like? Well, I don't know, but I mean, it might not be connected to a modern sewer system. It might not even use water. It might just be a little self-contained sewage treatment system that just recycles all of the waste. But what a future toilet looks like, well, that doesn't really matter, does it? What matters 
is that more people have access to it. Now, before we sign off, I had to circle back with Hotting Carter. When he was writing this book about the history of the toilet and plumbing, he got really into it, and he got his own super high-tech Toto toilet. So I couldn't end without asking him about it. That's a sad question, though, Kevin. I, had, I was in love, and I worshipped my Japanese toilet seat. Her name was Jasmine. You know, she's warm, <laughs> caressing. She took care of me when my wife wouldn't even talk to me. First, the seat was heated, which is beautiful. And then you didn't have to use your hands like anywhere. You just would hit a button and it, and it would wash your bum. And the smell coming off of it would be taken across a plate that was covered in magnesium oxide, I think. And that would actually transform the stinky molecules to unstinky ones. <laughs> and at the end, there was a blow dryer on her. We lost oh. Jasmine in a house fire. Oh, I know. Hottie, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. It's been, it's been, it's been a lot, number of years of mourning. I think we're now ready to move on and maybe get a new one. You know, I think it's been mm. long enough. Well, we appreciate you sharing your time with us, <laughs> and we hope the future for you and whoever Jasmine's replacement may be will be warm and soothing and bright. Well, thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate that. And I hope someday you find your Jasmine. <laughs> right now, after that description, there's nothing I want more than to find a jasmine. <laughs> Drop us an email at clearstory@thisoldhouse.com to let us know what you think of this episode and if there's anything else you want us to explore. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Clear Story and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clear Story was produced by Rococo Punch for This Old House. Production support from Catherine Fenelosa, Chris Ermides, and Sarah Chase. Thanks to our guests, Hotting Carter, Linda Viking, and of course, Richard Chathui. I'm Kevin O'Connor. More next week. <laughs>